Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. I'm doing especially well because I always love when we have a conversation that has some sort of historical element to it. This is a crime that took place, a terrible crime that took place in 1976, and I can't wait to hear the feedback on this one. But before we get to that, Tim, I'd like some feedback from you after I ask you, how are you today? <laughs> I am doing great. And yeah, very excited to introduce this conversation. It's something a little bit different today in that this is not a missing person who is a victim. Actually, this is a missing person who is a criminal that we're talking about here today. And we are joined by Laura Risty once again, who has joined us for our series on Trenny Gibson and Polly Melton and very soon about the disappearance of Dennis Martin. And that's all from the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, as is this case in a very small way. William Bradford Bishop murdered his wife, mother, and three sons in 1976 and then left his car in the parking lot of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and by all accounts left to avoid prosecution. He had worked for the U.S. government, and so it's possible that this is a guy who escaped the country in order to avoid prosecution. And for anybody who has heard Laura on the show before will know that she comes with a vast amount of research. She's extremely articulate, extremely detailed, and pretty much everything that she brings to the table we know has been vetted as completely as possible. And it's always a great conversation with her, and it's always great to learn about her process. And now, let's add that element of fascination to it. You said that this one has a small connection to the Great Smoky National Park, just like Trenny Gibson and the other ones that we've spoken about. Laura's created this bit of a universe where the crimes that she investigates independently have some tie to this area. So, yeah, it's starting to get fascinating that Laura will bring these to us. And even if it's a car left in the parking lot, there's still something in that area. And Laura's not even close to that area. No, that's right. Actually, she's a Canadian girl, as um, or really a woman, but uh, her website is CanadianGirl77.com, and that's girl with a U. Um, and she's got a lot of information on that website, mostly about Trenny Lynn Gibson and her disappearance, but there are other cases on there as well, as well as a message board, so you get some comments and things like that. And if you want to listen to this episode without the ads, or for that matter, any episode that Laura's joined us on, or any episode at all, Without the ads, Tim, how, how could someone do this? Listeners can subscribe to Missing Premium now on Apple Podcasts. You get ad-free episodes, early releases, and our weekly bonus show, which everybody loves. And if you're not an Apple user, you can go to missing.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product right there. I've heard that people also love our social media, Tim, and there are some people who don't know where to find that, including myself. Where can we find this? That is a shame. It's like I never listen when you tell me. It is great. You can find us at Missing CSM on social media. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to break quick for commercial here, and we'll be right back with Laura Risty. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Golds. And we're the host of the Underworld Podcast. 
We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there, we've seen it, and we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field, and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the podcast, Laura Risty. How are you tonight, Laura? I'm great, Tim. How are you? Doing great. Thanks a lot for joining us again. Oh, you bet. Anytime. Well, you're joining us about a slightly different topic than we usually cover. Usually we cover this region of the Great Smoky Mountains, right? Right. Right. This is not that. And this is a little darker. It is. Yeah. And I know from all of the conversations that we've had with you in the past, how extraordinarily detailed you are with your research and your investigations. And I'm not going to lie. I'm a little nervous about this. And not in like a ooh horror movie type nervous, but I'm anxious to hear what you're going to come up with. So I I guess just bring it on. Thank you for joining us. You bet. Pleasure to be here as always. When I was about probably around 12, 13 years old, we only had two channels living out in the middle of nowhere. So two channels on the TV and Unsolved Mysteries used to come on every Wednesday night with Robert Stack. And I never missed an episode. That was the highlight of my week. Although uh, the show would end at 9 p.m. and it would be time for me to go to bed and I'd have a terrible time trying to go to sleep if there'd been a ghost story or something like that on or a particularly grisly murder or something like that. I was, like I said, about 12, 13 years old and this episode was aired about this gentleman that murdered his entire family. His mother, his wife, and his three sons then threw the bodies in his station wagon, drove about 300 miles southwest, burnt the bodies in a pit, then continued on in the car, ditched the car in a campground at the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and then vanished off the face of the earth. And they'd been looking for him since March of 1976. And there'd been a couple sightings over in Europe, but aside from that, never seen him again. So something just intrigued me about the whole story, this station wagon driving down the highway with its grisly cargo, and this guy behind the wheel with the family golden retriever in the car. He let the dog live. He just snapped, killed his family, packed everyone up, dumped them in a pit, ditched the car, and was never seen again. And I was just fascinated by it. It was right up there with D.B. Cooper and the Lost Dutchman Mine and all those other uh, those other mysteries. Back in those days, I mean, we didn't have the internet, so there was very little about Brad Bishop anywhere that you could uh, find for information. But once the World Wide Web came into being when I was in high school, William uh, Bradford Bishop was probably one of the first things that I typed into one of the search engines just because I was curious, did they ever catch this guy? And sure enough, no, he's still out there. They caught John List, who committed a similar crime back in 1989, but uh, William Bradford Bishop remains unaccounted for to this day. So I had mentioned earlier that you usually come on and we talk about this region that is the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. This has become sort of a universe for you. 
There's another disappearance that we're going to have an episode about that you contributed to that you're still looking into also taking place in that same area. What is it about this area? Did you find it or did it find you? I think it found me. It might have found me in stages, but it definitely found me. Like I said, before I really found Trenny, my association with the Great Smoky Mountains was just, you know, like I knew Nashville was in Tennessee. I knew Dolly Parton and her uh, Smoky Mountain Christmas. You know, I'd heard of that. A few other things like George Strait, he hung his hat in Tennessee, that type of thing. But really, I had no association with the case. I don't have any relatives in Tennessee. No ties at all with Tennessee. It's about 2,400 miles from where I live. Yeah, it was just a place on a map. And it still is, technically. It is, but it's become a real fascination for me. Yeah. Perhaps I've lived before and I've lived there, I don't know, but it's really a fascinating place. Yeah, a lot of the mysteries that you look into really do intersect right there, including William Bradford Bishops. Tell us about who he was and who is his family? Well, Brad Bishop, he was born August 1st in 1936, and he was born in Pasadena, California, and his father was a petroleum geologist. He was an only child. His mother was a homemaker, as most wives were in those days. His parents were quite fond of the ballet and dancing and things like that. Brad graduated from Yale with a Bachelor of Science. He later got a Master of Arts degree in International Studies from Middle College in Vermont, and then eventually he got a master's degree in African studies from UCLA. So he had a childhood sweetheart named Annette Wells. They got married in 1959 after he graduated from Yale, and then they had three sons, Brad, Brenton, and Jeffrey. Annette was a housewife. Bradford Bishop first joined the army, where he spent four years working in counterintelligence, and he was posted a lot in Yugoslavia. And he spoke five languages fluently, English, Italian, French, Spanish, and Serbo-Croatian. So he's a very, very smart man. In doing research, I did find that while he was brilliant and did have the capacity, he wasn't the greatest student. He maintained around a C average. After he finished his service in the army. He joined the U.S. State Department, and then he served in the Foreign Service in a lot of postings overseas. He was in Italy for a while, Verona, Milan, and Florence. He also uh, served in the Foreign Service in Africa and Ethiopia and Botswana, and then he returned to the U.S. to the State Department headquarters in Washington, D.C., and he was Assistant Chief in the Division of Special Activities and Commercial Treaties. He had a house in Bethesda, Maryland, Maryland, uh, where he lived with Annette and his sons, and his mother, uh, Lobelia Bishop, she moved in with them after Brad's father passed away. And Lobelia actually was the one that made the down payment on the house in uh, Bethesda there. Brad was a smoker. He liked his scotch. He liked peanuts and spicy food. People described him as being intense, kind of remote in a way, narcissistic, and he could be quick to anger. He had a diary where he used to write like his dreams and goals and observations and things and he wanted to be an ambassador by the time he was 50. But he uh, had checked out some postings that the State Department 
had posted for promotions and he didn't get a promotion like he had been hoping for and he was kind of depressed about that. He was under psychiatric care at the time of the murders and he saw a psychiatrist once a week and he was taking antidepressants. His wife Annette was also seeing a psychiatrist once a week as well. So in 1976, Brad Bishop made $26,000 a year. Adjusted for inflation, that's $137,466.43 in today's money. So he had a good position and he was making a good salary. But like I said, he'd been passed over for a promotion and that depressed him. His ambition was to be an ambassador. So after he found out that he didn't make this promotion at 5.30 on March 1st, 1976, Bishop left work complaining that he really wasn't feeling very well, but he told his superiors that he would probably be back in at work the next day, and he left. Several hours before, on that same day, he'd cashed a $400 check at the bank. After he left work, he went to Sears and he bought a two and a half gallon gas can and a two and a half pound sledgehammer. Then he filled up his 1974 Chevrolet station wagon with gas and then he stopped at a hardware store and bought a shovel. So sometime after nightfall, he returned home. Annette was in the living room sitting on the floor reading a book and she was killed first. She was uh, struck with the sledgehammer over the head. Lobelia, his mother, had been out walking the family dog, Leo. So when she came in, he killed her next. And she had injuries that looked like she probably had fallen when he was striking her because she had different injuries than Annette did. Then he calmly went and he killed the three boys. The one boy, the oldest, so that would have been Bradley Jr., he had very, very severe injuries compared to the other two. It looked basically like his dad just went psycho and just hit him and hit him and hit him. And we're not really sure why that was. Brad Bishop then wrapped the bodies in towels and blankets and dragged them out to the station wagon and put them in the back. He packed up some toiletries for himself and he packed up the family dog, Leo, who was with the living, and then he drove off. He headed to Columbia, North Carolina, which is 300 miles southeast. And Columbia, North Carolina is a fairly small town and it's one of those places if you didn't really know it was there you'd miss it kind of thing so authorities believe that he planned this all along and he planned to go there the next afternoon so this would have been march 2nd 1976 smoke was spotted coming from the woods outside columbia and a forest ranger named ronald blockhouse was sent to check it out and on this logging road he found a smoldering pit and a burning gas can and several acres of brush had also burnt and he could see a woman's leg and what appeared to be another body burning in this pit. Later when the police had come they found the bodies of the three children underneath the two women and there was no identification on anyone, there was no passports nothing like that. The shovel was left there and the investigators believed that Blockhouse the ranger, he just missed catching the killer because the fire was very fresh, the tire track 
tracks were very fresh on the logging road. At this point, Bishop then used his credit card to purchase sneakers at a Jacksonville, North Carolina store, and this was within a day of the bodies being discovered. And that's 130 miles southwest of where these bodies were found. And he was sighted with Leo the dog and a dark-complected woman in Jacksonville, North Carolina. By March 8th, so about a week after the murders, the neighbor got concerned because she hadn't seen the bishops for a few days, so she alerted the authorities. The authorities went in, they looked in the house, they saw the blood and everything else, and they made a connection between them and the burning bodies in North Carolina. And a grand jury indicted Bishop for murder in absentia in the Montgomery County, North Carolina. So then March 18th, a ranger in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, he reports finding the Bishop's station wagon parked at the Elkmont campground. It had been sitting there since about March 6th. That had been two days before the neighbor alerted the authorities that she hadn't seen the bishops. So the car was sitting there, and nearby to where the car was parked is the Jake's Creek Trailhead, and that's really popular with hikers. When they looked inside the car, investigators found blood, a shaving kit, and dog treats. And they ran the plates on the Maryland car and found out they were hot. And then by 5.30 p.m. that day, 10 FBI agents from Knoxville had arrived on the scene. The car was taken to a park headquarters maintenance area for security. The car was searched and it revealed bloody clothes, a gun, personal hygiene items, a credit card receipt for the purchase of the shoes in Jacksonville, dog treats and evidence that a dog had been present there, so likely dog hair. Teams of rangers and FBI agents combed the area on foot and also with a bloodhound. Backpackers were warned to terminate their trip inside the park or divert to areas outside side of the park. Someone resembling Brad Bishop had been at the Sugarlands Visitor Center at uh, the park in early March asking for a park map, mentioning that he had enjoyed camping previously at Elkmont and wanted directions so that he could go back. Bloodhounds, they picked up scent at uh, the Visitor Center on March 24th and at the front and back doors of the Allen Cabin. There were some rustic Elkmont uh, homes where well-to-do families spent summer vacation back in the day, but once the dog was let inside the cabin, he lost interest. The cabins were all checked thoroughly. They looked in the lofts, cubby holes, toilets everywhere, anything structural, couldn't find any sign of Brad Bishop. They did find a wingtip shoe print on the Appalachian Trail, which was a little out of place. They searched Newt Prong, the Appalachian Trail from Clingman's Dome to Goshen Ridge Trail, Cucumber Gap Trail, and Miggs Mountain to Metcalf Bar. They never did find any other sign of Brad Bishop, and by March 26th, they called the search off. An acquaintance told Dwight McCarter, now Dwight is quite a prominent ex-ranger and tracker in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and I've mentioned him both in Dennis Martin's story and also the story of Trenny Lynn Gibson, and he was one of the rangers that was searching the park for Brad Bishop. An acquaintance told him um, that there was a small grave near Newt Prom. So Dwight McCarter checked it out, and sure enough, there was a grave there. It was about three feet long, piled with stones, and it had a small cross that had been tied with parachute cord. And McCarter didn't dig up the grave, but he believed that that's where Bishop buried his dog, Leo. There were a couple sightings after that of Brad Bishop, one in Stockholm, Sweden, from an old friend that knew the bishops from their time 
when Brad was a diplomat in Ethiopia, and that was in July in 1978. There was another one in January of 1979 in Sorrento, Italy, where another acquaintance of Bishop's ran into him in a bathroom, and all they really had to say about Brad Bishop was he had a disheveled appearance and he had grown a beard. So then okay. Jack Collier, he became the chief ranger at Cumberland Gap, and he eventually purchased the station wagon that carried the bodies to their grave. He bought it from the estate of Annette Bishop in October of 76, and he kept it a couple of years. Some people think that that's really, really weird and bad karma and whatever. You know, maybe the price was right. Maybe he got it for 20 bucks and they cleaned it up for him and he <laughs> he just he needed a car really bad and he just decided to drive it. But he believes that Bishop escaped and he's living somewhere in South Africa. Whereas Dwight McCarter believes that he died and he possibly could be dead in the Smokies. And then another uh, interesting fact here was Jacques Dambois was a ballet dancer and he got to know Bishop as a teenager while living in Pasadena because both of the bishops were ballet fans and he stayed with them and Brad for a while when he was about 17 years old and still starting out as a dancer. They remained friends over the years and Dambois was supposed to stay with Brad Bishop and his wife in Bethesda on February 29th, 1976 because he had a performance at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. So he and his wife were going to come and uh, they were were going to stay with the Bishop family before this performance, but Dambois had a knee injury a couple days prior, and it caused him to cancel. And he passed away here about a year or two ago. I read his book, actually, and there's quite a section in it about Brad Bishop and his family, and he often wondered if he and his wife had come and stayed at the Bishop house, would that have changed history? Would the family still be alive? Or would it maybe have gone the other way and Jacques and his wife would have been added to the carnage and they would have been murdered too. He doesn't know, but he wondered that for years. And then uh, Tim and I were talking about this a few weeks back. We were talking about Dennis Martin and I brought up Brad Bishop and he had mentioned about Kathy Gilchrist. She found out in, I believe it was 2020 or 2021, that she was actually um, William Bradford Bishop's illegitimate daughter. She did the whole spit in a tube DNA thing sent it in and found out that FBI's most wanted list was actually her father. What a wild twist in her life, huh? Yeah. So I guess when you go fishing in the gene pool, you have to be very careful what you catch because she just laughed it off. You know, really, what can you do? But apparently Brad Bishop, when he was at Yale, he went to Boston for a weekend and found some young lady and they had a fling and she found herself pregnant and then she gave birth to uh, Kathy and gave her up for adoption. And this was about in 1956, 1957. I'm curious if you have any information on on what the FBI is doing with the DNA from anything that belonged to Bishop. Because I was looking at articles and there was some statement saying that they weren't releasing any DNA that was coming from Bishop on, on that end to make like an official match in their eyes or something. Well, I, I guess how they how found out that Kathy Gilchrist was related to Brad Bishop was there were seven cigarette butts found in the ashtray of the station wagon that came carried its bloody cargo, and they got DNA from one of those and tested it. And sure enough, it was Brad Bishop's DNA. 
And that's how they got the DNA to match with Kathy. But Brad Bishop has been taken off the FBI's most wanted list. They did that probably in the last year or so because of his age. He was born in 1936. You know, the guy is just three years shy of turning 90. And putting him on there seemed to have accomplished what they had hoped for, which I guess is publicity in some cases. Yeah, for the most part. But some people believe that Brad Bishop killed himself in the park. I don't believe that. He was too much of a narcissist in order to take his own life. He was living abroad somewhere. Whether or not he's still alive remains to be seen, but my money is on he was living abroad somewhere. It could have likely been in South Africa or some foreign country. The guy had a diplomatic passport. I mean, he could go anywhere. I think he went to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. I believe he'd been there before with his family. The FBI did some checking of the records, and it looked like Brad Bishop, Annette, and the three boys had been there the previous summer, June, July, August 1975, somewhere in there. So he knew the area liked it. I believe that he traveled there kind of to see it one last time because he knew he probably wasn't ever going to see it again. And then he took off and went to some foreign country before the heat was on. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. What do you make of the nature of the crimes based on his personality and the type of person that he was? I know you said that he was prone to outbursts and maybe short-tempered and withdrawn from time to time, but I'm getting more to like, you said he also knew five different languages and he was a very active person. He was an outdoorsman. He camped, he hiked. He seemed to have a lot of sensibility about him, whereas the nature of the crime, like going at your own family with a sledgehammer, is really kind of counter to like someone who would be described on that other way. He definitely either had some undiagnosed mental illness or he wasn't taking his medication. He did have a prescription for some antidepressants. The bottle was found in the station wagon after Brad Bishop ditched it and took off. Maybe he'd stopped taking his medication, or he needed further help or further assistance with what was all going on. Apparently, he and Annette were having some financial difficulties. How severe they were, I haven't really been able to pin it down. Some say that Brad was a upset because Annette had gone back to school and he wanted her to be a stay-at-home mom, so they were clashing that way. The IRS was auditing their taxes, but I believe that Brad's problems go a lot further than that, and I believe there was some undiagnosed mental illness of some sort, or else he wasn't taking his medication. But he was a worldly guy, so he had a bunch of skills, which would lead you to think that he could survive out there after ditching his original original identity and then he gave himself a head start and seemed to have clearly tried to confuse the investigation is that how you read his actions after the murders this was definitely something that was planned out you know he planned it out enough where he's going to make sure he has some cash he's going to make sure the vehicle's filled with gas he's going to buy the tool to do the job in, in this case it being a sledgehammer and a shovel you know it was very well planned columbia north carolina like i said if you don't know it's there, it's kind of a, one of those hit and miss places. He'd been to the park before, so he probably wanted to uh, get rid of the bodies, 
Colombia. He figured nobody would be around. That'd be the perfect place to do it. He'd stop in the Smoky Mountains, potentially pick up this lady friend of his that he was spotted with, this dark-complected lady. When he bought the tennis shoes, she was apparently with them. Go to the park, have one last hoorah. He'd have to deal with Leo because he couldn't take Leo where he was going and then disappear. So it was something very well thought out. Yeah. And he seemed to have had a connection to North Carolina. Yeah, there is some connection. And likely when they went camping the summer before, they likely had driven through there and stopped there. And Brad Bishop had even mentioned when he was at the Sugarlands Visitor Center looking for that map that he had been to Elkmont before and wanted a map because he wanted to go to the same place as he had last time. Over the course of your research for this, did it strike you as uncommon that both him and his wife were on medication for depression? and also both seeing psychiatrists once a week in 1978. Is that something that was common then? Not really, no. I know Brad, he had a prescription for medication. I can't say that he was taking it. Or if it was the right prescription for him, I don't know that Annette was taking any medication for depression or anything, but I know that she was seeing a psychiatrist as well. And Brad was seeing one once a week, plus he was on medication. And Brad was known to suffer from depression, and he was also known to suffer from sleep disorders. Sleep disorders like insomnia? Yeah, having trouble sleeping, yeah. And you did mention that he would keep a journal of his dreams, right? Just his goals and things that he wanted to accomplish and that sort of thing. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Sorry. I was thinking literal dreams. Okay. Just uh, what he wanted to accomplish. And he very much wanted to be an ambassador. And he set the goal for it had to happen by the time he was 50 years old. And was that diary found at a later date? Yeah, the authorities found it and read excerpts of it. I only have a few excerpts because that's all the information I was able to get. I don't know if there's anything in there, if he made any uh, notations to the fact that he wasn't taking his medication. He did make several um, notations that he was always on the threshold, on the threshold, on the threshold. So I'm not sure what the on the threshold means. Did that mean that he was on the threshold and he was going to snap? I'm not sure. Folks that suffered from mental illness or depression in the 70s, we've learned a lot about it now, but in those days it wasn't really as much of an exact science. They tended to lump things all together. Like if you remember um, that movie Sybil with Sally Field where she had uh, multiple personality disorder. They don't call it that anymore, but she had several different personalities. What we call bipolar now was manic depression then. So things have changed and evolved a lot from the 70s, like in the last 40 years with regards to mental illness. So Brad was under the umbrella of depression, so I don't know exactly what his diagnosis was. He was on a prescription called Xanax, I believe. And the bottle was found in the car after he ditched the car. And again, he ditched the car in the Smokies. Yeah. And it's theorized that he killed his dog at that time? Is that what's thought? It's theorized that he killed the dog in the park and buried it there. That seems very strange to me after uh, having killed the family and then letting the dog live and bringing the dog 300 miles and then killing the dog there. It does. And I'm a big animal lover and I don't like thinking about it. But the best way that I can try to explain it is 
he brought the dog with him for companionship from Maryland to the Smokies. But it's almost like the dog had lived out his usefulness, so to speak. So he knew he couldn't take the dog with him where he was going. So thus he killed the dog. Yeah, I was actually thinking something similar to that, that he was using the dog as protection until he got to a point where he didn't need the dog as protection anymore. Yeah. You get into the head of somebody who's a narcissist that are only thinking of themselves and whatever, and it's like, he didn't need the dog anymore, so now the dog was done. I'm really fascinated by his work in the uh, Foreign Service as a Foreign Service officer, and I think he would mention that his father was a petroleum geologist, so that was somebody who would, I guess, analyze rocks and look for oil and petroleum, and that must have been back in like the 40s and 50s, right? Yes, and his family was fairly wealthy. His dad had a good job, and he was an only child. Like I said, yeah, he went to Yale, but he wasn't like a stellar standout student either. So he kind of maintained a C average. He probably could have done a lot better, but he probably just didn't apply himself. Sorry, getting back, the medication was called Serax, S-E-R-A-X, used for the treatment of anxiety and insomnia and in control of symptoms of alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Was there an indication that he was an alcoholic? Not that I could read anywhere. He did like his scotch, but it doesn't say that he dabbled in it to excess. Likely he was on this drug for the treatment of anxiety and maybe for insomnia because he did suffer from insomnia as well. And this drug was patented in 1962 and approved for medical use in 1964. And tell me a little bit more about this woman that he was spotted with. Is there anything else about her? No, all I could find out about her was she had a dark complexion. So I don't know if that means she's an African-American lady or what exactly. Dark complected could be a lot of things. She could be Cherokee. She could be uh, African-American. Um, you know, how dark is dark complected, really? But that was all that was mentioned. And she was seen with Bishop and Leo the dog in Jacksonville, uh, North Carolina, where he stopped to buy the shoes at a sporting goods store. And the information is pretty credible that this was definitely him? Yeah, apparently it was. They did find a credit card receipt in the station wagon to back up that he was in Jacksonville. And the receipt was for this pair of shoes. That's good detective work there. Now, what about the other sightings? Are those credible? I think they are because they're people that knew Bishop that had worked with him. One was in um, Stockholm, Sweden, and another one was in Sorrento, Italy. One was in 1978 in the summer, I believe, and the other one was in uh, January of 1979. And then there was actually, um, I believe it was around 2014, they got the idea that this person that had been struck and killed on the highway was Bishop. I th believe he was from Alabama and they exhumed the body and everything only to find out no it wasn't him. Was there any possibility of a murder for hire plot or was this pretty clearly Bishop who did this? Oh this was definitely Bishop that did it. Why he did it I don't know. He just snapped. That kind of devastation to your family hitting them over the head over and over again with a sledgehammer like you have to get right up close and 
personal with them. It was just absolutely horrific. I don't know how to explain what was going on in his head. Again, I don't know if he was taking his medication. Because of the doctor-client privilege, I don't know what the psychiatrist that Bishop was seeing, what his findings were. But I mean, even a similar murder, I believe it was 1971 in New Jersey, where John List murdered his family. And he murdered his mother, his wife, his daughter, and his two sons. He used a pistol. He killed them, dragged them all into one room inside his mansion, turned the heat way down, and then he took off. But he was found, I believe it was 18 years later in 1989. A neighbor recognized him. He was on America's Most Wanted, where Frank Bender had done a bust of what John List would look like 18 years later, and it looked exactly like him as it turned out. His neighbor identified him, um, and he was living across the country in Denver, Colorado, I believe. That was a similar murder to the one that we're talking about today in 1976, only Brad Bishop chose to use a sledgehammer instead of a gun. Were there any other similar crimes after that? Had a sledgehammer as the weapon of choice? It's possible. There's none that completely jumped to mind. I just think of the List murder that happened five years earlier in New Jersey. And that was severe financial pressure that caused John List to snap. And he believed that his family would be better off dead because at least if he killed them, then they would go to heaven. And he was worried that the way that they were going, if he let them live, they'd end up going down below instead of up above. He was afraid they'd find out about the dire straits that their finances were in. They would lose the house and everything else. And he said that he didn't want to put them through that. It would be just easier if he murdered them and then they'd just go to heaven. Such bullshit. Oh, I know. It's just ridiculous. And then what was really added insult to injury in the John List case was his wife had talked him into purchasing this house. In its heyday, it was a beautiful mansion, but it was in a state of disrepair when they bought it, and it, it needed a lot of work. And you can imagine an enormous house like that. You know, the bills are expensive, the heat and the light and everything else. Well, anyway, at the time that he purchased the house, he was president of a bank. His mother actually helped him buy the house. She made the down payment for him. And then she was going to sell her place and she was going to move into the house. There was a little upstairs apartment that she could stay in. So anyway, they move into this house. John List loses his job at the bank because he can't work with people. He can't manage people. And instead of coming clean to his family and telling them, sitting them down, telling them, okay, this is what happened, he hides it from them. So he still gets up every day and gets dressed in his shirt and tie and everything. And he goes and sits down at the train station and goes through the want ads looking for work, but he doesn't actually have a job. And this goes on for months. In order to stay afloat, he starts pilfering his mother's bank account and that's running dry and he can't find a job. And his wife had contracted syphilis from her first husband and it had gone into the stages where now it was like causing like lesions in her brain and things like that. So, 
she was very sick. His daughter was dabbling a little bit in the occult. John List was a devout Lutheran and he was having none of that. And he was just convinced that the whole family was just going to go to hell and they were going to lose the house and he was going to be a total failure and everything else. So then he conjured up this idea, well, he's just going to murder them all and then he's going to escape. So that's what he ended up doing. But anyway, to add insult to injury, one room inside this mansion, there was a uh, stained glass ceiling and it was done by Tiffany himself. And it was worth thousands upon thousands of dollars, this ceiling. But if John List had just literally like looked up, he might have found the answer to his money problem. But instead, he just wiped out his family, packed up and took off. It's so hypocritical. I know that there's a lot of like emotional mental illness that goes into play with all this. And there's probably something in someone like John List and someone like Bishop's upbringing that placed all of these triggers in their heads, you know, years prior. There's probably multiple triggers that were just waiting to go off. But it just is hypocritical to me that someone like you said, John List was a devout Lutheran. Yeah, he was a devout Lutheran. Yeah, right. And he wouldn't have any part of his daughter being into the occult. Well, his daughter didn't annihilate the family. You know, it's the devout Lutheran who's the one who annihilated the family. Yeah, and it was the occult. And then she was also um, doing some acting like she'd gotten really interested in drama in high school and she'd acted in a few plays and he didn't like that either. And it got to the point where somehow he got this idea in his head that he was really the only righteous one of the bunch and the rest of them could just go to hell and he was going to kill them and take off. He had them all laid out on sleeping bags in the ballroom and then he sat down and he uh, had lunch and he wrote out this big long letter to the pastor of the local church and then at the very bottom of the last page kind of as an afterthought mother is in the third floor hallway she was too heavy to move sounds like he's throwing a little subtle shade at his mom yeah he was on the lam for 18 years before they finally caught him but bishop's never been caught and what a son of a bitch like what a thing to do to your family yeah we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor and a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. A gun is so impersonal because you can do it at a distance. I don't have to tell you guys this. Like a sledgehammer. I mean, that's that's insane. You went to a hardware store. You had a choice to buy anything else but a sledgehammer. And the thing is, like with a sledgehammer, to wield that thing and hit somebody over, you have to be in an absolute like animal type rage. I can't even imagine. You know, like if you strangle somebody, it takes several minutes for them to die, you know, and you have to get up right close and personal with your victim. But this sledgehammer and especially the way that his oldest son Brad his namesake was killed he was just struck over and over and over and over again like what causes somebody to do that yeah some extreme anger I guess what a tragedy it was like his meds I guess they weren't strong enough or he wasn't taking them and of course because of the doctor client privilege like we don't know what exactly he disclosed to his psychiatrist right but he had different skills too if we're, uh, you know, talking about John List as well. John List was, I think, an accountant or, or something like that. Yeah. And th this guy, Bishop, had skills uh, that made him worldly. 
Yeah, like he'd been in the army, like I said, in, in counterintelligence. The only thing that the army had said about him was he was rather careless, like reckless. He didn't pay attention to things, attention to detail, maybe as well as he should have. They complained a few times where he'd take something apart and then not put it back together or not put it away. And that was a little bit of a problem. But he served his four years. Likely the military uh, helped him pay for some of his education. You know, I wonder if there was a possibility that he had a brain tumor. Oh, that's possible. You know, I, I wouldn't rule that out. For lack of a better way to say it, he snapped over something and he to- definitely took it out on the wrong people. And what do you think? You mentioned that you don't believe that he's alive. If he's dead right now, it's because of old age or some kind of ail- ailment like that. But I never believed he killed himself. He's too much of a narcissist. He thinks too highly of himself to kill himself. Is there like a happy ending we can button this up with or... Is there anything that we can take from this that's positive? It's really a dark episode because there's no happy in it. They haven't caught the bastard. We don't know whatever happened to him, but I can almost guarantee he didn't kill himself. I guess Leo had a slightly better fate than the family, if that's Leo in that grave in the Smoky Mountains there. Well, at least he had a, you know, a nice little place to rest. Beautiful scenery. He even got a little cross out of the deal where Bishop's wife and mother of his three children and his three children and his mother, who gave him life, were smoldering in a pit in uh, North Carolina. So I guess the dog fared a little better out of the deal. And Jack Collier got a station wagon. <laughs> the ballet dancer, at least he didn't. Sp- he and his wife didn't spend the night there, or he might not have lived to be 80-some-odd years old. Yeah, there we go. He said that bothered him for the rest of his life because he doesn't know if he and his wife stayed there, could that have changed history then? Would Annette and the boys and Lobelia, would everything have been okay? You know, having them there, would that would have diffused the situation somehow? Or would he just, he and his wife just been added to the bodies? I think I'm leaning more to the latter. If not totally added to the body count, damaged enough where his career would probably have been over. Brad also, he was known to not be faithful to his wife as well. I believe he had gotten sent to Switzerland. It had to do with uh, his work at the State Department. And he'd gone skiing and he was sided with another woman. So that factored in there too, that he was unfaithful at times towards Annette. And she wanted to get her art degree and go back to work. And he didn't want her to. He just wanted her to stay home. So that led a little bit of friction there, but definitely not enough to murder your entire family over. I tend more towards there was something very mentally wrong with Brad and he either wasn't taking his medication or he wasn't doing something he was supposed to be doing. Or maybe perhaps he had a brain tumor, but there was definitely some underlying issues. He had his father's Smith & Wesson 38 gun. I'm thinking like, oh my God, you had a gun, but you bought a sledgehammer. Why did you want to do that to them? What fueled your anger? Bishop, while he worked with the government and he served for the army, did he ever see any actual conflict? Was he ever engaged in any fighting? Or was it more like the intelligence part of it? That I'm 
not sure of. I think he was just, he just served in counterintelligence. I don't know if he saw any actual uh, combat and maybe suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder or something like that. I also think it's interesting on the FBI poster that they wrote, if you see this person, you know, he should be considered extremely dangerous with suicidal tendencies. And then they said, if you have any information, contact your local FBI office or the nearest American embassy or consulate. Uh, so I feel like they are taking some of those overseas sightings as credible. Yeah, well, like I said, when Brad disappeared, so did his passport. The dead family members, their passports were all at the house. Brad's was not. So with a diplomatic passport, he could have gone anywhere. He could have hurried and left the U.S. before the heat was on. And he could have went to South Africa. He could have gone over in Europe. He could have went wherever he wanted to, really. As long as he was able to stay off the radar, I think he would have been able to live for many years. His house in Bethesda, Maryland, where the murders took place, is still standing. There's a couple that lives there with their two teenagers. They said the house is great. They don't have any problems. Not a house I would want to live in. I don't think I would want to test that. No, I wouldn't want the car either. I don't care if I got it for 20 bucks. I wouldn't want it. It's just bad karma. Yeah. Well, I would say thank you for coming on and telling us a uplifting tale, but... Yeah, I, I'm sorry about that. There isn't a happy ending to it, except <laughs> for maybe the ballet dancer there and his wife, and maybe Leo got a little bit of a better end of the deal. Maybe he was shot with a gun, not smashed over the gull with a sledgehammer, but yeah, that's about it for happiness in this tale. Well, Laura, thank you for coming on and telling us about William Bradford Bishop. It's a crazy story, and I am upset that he was never caught. I, I feel like that's a big miscarriage of justice there. It is, and, you know, hell is too good for what that guy did. I can remember, like I said, watching that on Unsolved Mysteries when I was 12, 13 years old and just thinking, oh, my God, how could you even do such a thing? At least with John List, what he did was just as heinous, but at least they did catch him, even though it took 18 years. WBIR in Knoxville did a three-part series on William Bradford Bishop, I believe in 2018. You can Google that. And then I read the book by Doc D'Ambrose, the ballet dancer, and there's a chapter or two in there about Bishop. He lived with the uh, Bishop family when he was 17 and Brad Bishop was about 14, I believe. Again, you can read about Kathy Gilchrist. She's the lady that found out that Brad Bishop was her father. What about people who might have some information on what happened to him contact the fbi he's no longer on that most wanted list but i mean they'd still take your information anyway basically they took him off because of his age well laura thank you so much for uh, coming on again and talking to us about this case it's uh, it is a fascinating mystery you're very welcome and if there's anything else you would like for me to come on and talk about just reach out and let me know